Heavenly Father, we just want to say thank you for your blessings upon us. want to say thank you for just having people here at church this morning. And Lord, we thank you that for answering prayer and safety and travels. And Lord, just all the wonderful things that you do. And Lord, we thank you uh, for the timing of the uh, snow that has come. And thank you that it has not been a great difficulty. And, uh, Lord, we just look forward, thank you that we can look forward to serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have the go ye kids to go ye. And the rest of us that's taken outline here, our tenth week as we are marching through the gospel account. And our text seems to be smoothing out just a little bit, uh, not so much jumping around. We are beginning the third year. This is the last year of, uh, of Jesus' uh, ministry, public ministry. Uh, the Passover has just passed. Um, the, the scripture really is silent as to whether Jesus attended uh, or stayed there in Galilee for this uh, Passover, if he did go to Jerusalem, it was such a secretive thing that no one really knows uh, uh, what uh, that Jesus did so in, in utter silence here. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. And, and tonight we're going to try to cover about six months of this last year. You will notice that uh, our gospel accounts are, are fairly sparse. The first two years, uh, we are only uh, up to Luke chapter 9, John chapter 6, and uh, Mark chapter 7, as well as uh, Matthew uh, chapter 15, I mean, is where we're starting. And this is the last year of Jesus' ministry. And so, you can imagine uh, that John is absolutely correct in his summary at the end of the Gospel of John that if he was to write everything, uh, that the world itself could not contain the books that ought to be written. Jesus' ministry was not only miraculous in the fact that he was God living among us, it was miraculous in the things that he did. How many blind men did Jesus heal? How many lame men? How many demons did he cast out? How many people did he feed? I mean, all of these things amount to uh, what we would have to classify more than three or four uh, practical lifetimes. I mean, uh, normally uh, we consider somewhere in that period of uh, 20 to 25 years as an effective working life, unless you're a professional ball player, then it's less than 10 uh, most of the time. Uh, and uh, uh, so as we look at Jesus' ministry spanning just a little over three years, we, we come to an amazing conclusion that Jesus was incredibly active during uh, those times. So, uh, we come to Matthew chapter 15, and uh, 
we have the feast of the Passover finished, and Jesus is in Galilee now. And we have the Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, coming to Jesus. Verse 1, then came to Jesus, scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now, let's just stop here. Uh, I want to challenge you what is going on in our society today with our president is nothing new. How closely do you have to wash, watch someone to determine whether they have washed their hands before they eat dinner or not? I mean, stop and think about that. I mean, these, these Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees were not just sitting across the hallway with a set of binoculars. Of course, they didn't have opticals, optics like that in Jesus' day that we know of. But they had to be looking through keyholes and, and, uh, in windows and following them everywhere they went and try, and spying on them in order to keep this level of surveillance upon the apostles. And then they come to complain to Jesus. Now, I want you to follow this. If this is the only thing they could find to complain to Jesus about, what kind of life was Jesus and his apostles living? And uh, could we put an application to that? Uh, If the only thing they can find out about our president is that people who were working for him... And by the way, how many of you are aware of the fact that Michael Cohen was not the president's personal lawyer? He, he was like the errand boy for the lawyers of the president. I mean, he was so far out of the inner circle, it really is a joke. Um, it would be like coming to Philip and blaming him for the preaching in our church because he empties the garbage cans, really and truly. And... and uh, I mean, some have tried things like that over the years. Uh, 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 Well, let's move on. Amen? That illustration is running amok very quickly here. But do you get what I'm saying? Is they have to come to Jesus and complain that his disciples are not washing their hands before they sit down to a table and eat bread. I mean... How, how utterly ridiculous can you get? Yet, they were concerned because this transgressed the tradition of the elders. You see, the Old Testament in the Jewish language is called the Tanakh. Uh, that is the Scriptures. And so you have the Scriptures... And then you have the commentary, and then you have the commentary on the commentary. And, uh, and it gets, of course, the commentary is, is many volumes, and then the commentary on the commentary is many volumes on each volume of the commentary, uh, of, of the Bible, and it, and it gets to be a point of ridiculousness. 
I, I've been told, and, and I've probably told you way too many times, they had 300 regulations on the handling of Egyptian cucumbers. Uh, this was the tradition of the elders. And so now what Jesus does is he turns the entire thing back on them. Look at verse 3. But he answered them, why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? If we read in Mark's account, they use the Hebrew term korban or dedicated gift. And see, the, the Pharisees and the scribes had worked this thing out not only to uh, cheat the Romans and the tax collectors of Rome, but to cheat their own parents and anyone else as well. You see, if they claimed uh, in the Old Testament law you could take a piece of land and you could dedicate that to the Lord. The prophet was supposed to go to the temple. And, uh, of course, there was a certain portion that they had developed in their tradition of that harvest that came out to pay the laborers who actually uh, planted the field and worked the harvest so they could feed their families. And there came out a little portion of that that they were allowed to keep to feed their families. And then if there was anything left over, which was very, very little, then that went to the temple. Do you see what I'm saying? Is uh, It's pretty much like loopholes in the IRS code and uh, nothing new. Uh, the scribes and Pharisees had this all worked out. And the whole thing is you're, the parents, they didn't have Social Security. They didn't have retirement, pensions, all of those things. Here was your pension is your children worked the farm. They raised enough food for you, for their families, and for their parents. That's why the eldest son, when he was given his inheritance, would be given two-thirds of the inheritance, and then the rest would be divided among the other children, so that he would have the wherewithal to take care of the parents. And... The, tenth, uh, the commandment there, honor thy father and thy mother, is not only talking about obedience and respect, it was talking about taking care of them. And here Jesus opens the door to their cute little uh, racket that they had worked out, and he said, uh, let's just read it very carefully here, for God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother, and he that is curseth his father or curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Now, Jesus was not mincing words here. He was taking everything that they said and just turning it around and letting them understand that their religiosity, their little set of rules, was not acceptable with God. How many times have we been over this here? You cannot improve on the Word of God. You cannot change God's directions. God's commandments are still there. And we should follow these things. 
The law is there to teach us that when we break those commandments, we are dishonoring God. The first commandment you must break. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You must break that one in order to break all of the rest. And Jesus is calling them on this. He is rebuking them. He, um, uh, it, let's see here in verse 7. He says, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand. Now, he's just gotten done uh, verbally eviscerating. I mean, he just cut these people up in little tiny pieces, their logic, their practice. And then he calls the whole multitude together. He said, because the multitude understood what was going on. The, the Pharisees didn't do this quietly and respectfully. They were trying to embarrass Jesus publicly. And who got embarrassed by the time it was all over? So Jesus calls the multitude and said, listen to this. And, and he tells them, Verse 11, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth the man. And the disciples, they missed the whole thing. As always, just stand there. Who knows what they're doing? But guess what? If there's hope for the disciples, there's hope for us. Amen? Uh, let's be encouraged. How many times have we missed it? What the Bible actually says here. And Jesus explains that you just need to leave them alone. This is one of the reasons I tell you, don't, don't argue with the Jehovah's Sicknesses. Don't try to convince. If the Mormons want to hear the truth, they'll ask you. If they're trying to tell you their stuff, just leave the conversation alone. Um, the verse 14 says, Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. And Jesus explains to Peter here that what you eat, what you put in your mouth, goes through the digestive system. That does not defile you. But what you allow to dwell in your heart, and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks... That's what defiles someone. And so, we, we have this first part here. And uh, uh, Jesus turns this completely uh, on, on its head. And Jesus departs from there. And now he's heading east to the coast of uh, what we would call modern-day Lebanon, Tyre, and Sidon. And a... Uh, uh, Canaanitish woman there hears, if we read in the other passages here, the references uh, are there in the book of Mark. We find that she's a Syrophoenician. Uh, she's a, a Syrian woman, and the Phoenicians were actually the Philistines They uh, that lived farther south in what is modern-day Gaza. She had a, a relationship there. She was of the Canaanite people who lived in the land. She was not Jewish. 
She was living in the area of Lebanon outside of the uh, uh, nation of Israel. And she is harassing the disciples. She's saying, I've got a daughter that's possessed with a demon. And, and they, uh, Jesus just totally ignores her. And this is one of the stories that, uh, if we're not careful, you can take this out of context. Because uh, Jesus was not, arguably, was not what we would say kind in this story. First, he ignores her. And the disciples keep coming. Jesus, you've got to do something. She will not leave us alone. So what does Jesus do? He tells her, I'm not sent but to the children of Israel. I am, sent, I am a Jewish prophet sent to the Jewish people. And what was her saying? He, he said, it is not meat to give. It's not right to take that which belongs to the children and give it to the dogs. Now, that's pretty harsh, is it not? Uh, that might get you in trouble with the ACLU today. I mean, certainly, uh, unless you're a Democrat, it gets you in trouble in Congress. If you have Democrat after your name, you can say whatever you want. If you don't, you're going to get in trouble. I mean, that's the way it seems to work today. Uh, and so we need to pray for our government. We really do. But I'll tell you this. What we put up with today is no different than what Jesus put up with the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, is it? I mean, the same nitpicking response, the same all of this, the same hypocrisy. Here's what Jesus was trying to do. He was trying to put her faith on display. Now, who was he trying to make her faith put her faith on display for? The disciples. Do you realize this is the second and the last time in the Scripture Jesus uses the term great faith referring to a person? The first was the Roman centurion. You remember him? Don't even come to my house. Utter the word and my servant will be healed. Here she says... It's not meat, it's not right to take food that belongs to the children and give it to the dogs. Everybody knows that. But even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the master's table. She said, I don't need a big miracle. This is not a great amount of power for you. It's understand, she would not quit. She would not be deterred no matter what Jesus said. What happens to us when we think that God takes too long to answer our prayers? How many of you have ever thrown a pity party for yourself? God, why don't you take care of me the way you said in the Bible? Well, you know, we have a cure for two-year-olds when they do things like that. Now, don't we? And... and, uh, it, it wouldn't, it, and sometimes you just wonder why God does what he does is because, you know, he's not going to do the same thing to you as an adult that uh, would happen to a little child or should happen to a little child. But he's he, he's going to punish you. He's going to he's going to make it hurt. He's going to discipline you because, listen, God is in charge. He wanted the disciples to see what real faith looked like because they didn't have much of it. They were going to need it here in just a little bit of time. 
Jesus is putting some more pressure on his disciples, getting them ready because it is going to be in this six-month period of time that we're covering tonight that it's finally going to sink in through the thick skulls of the disciples that Jesus isn't always going to be there, the kingdom isn't coming immediately, that, that they are going to find themselves alone on the earth carrying out the ministry that Jesus has given them without Jesus. And uh, that was a frightening prospect. So, Jesus then heads back to Decapolis. That is the south-central to southwest side of the Sea of Galilee. He travels across, and the people there that from uh, uh, several months before this, when Jesus healed the demon-possessed man at Gadara, they bring to him, uh, let's just look this up in... Um, Let's look it up in Matthew chapter, I mean, Mark chapter 7, if we would. Mark chapter 7. In verse 31, And again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. And they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they beseech him to put his hand upon him. So these are the same people that knew what is called in our Bible the demoniac of, of Gadara, the demon-possessed man of Gadara, who's now uh, perfectly normal, going around telling people what Jesus had done for him. And they find the hardest case that they find. They find someone who is deaf, and dumb. He cannot speak. He cannot hear. And they bring him to Jesus and they say, can you fix this one? Uh, and so Jesus takes him and leads him aside. And the, uh, the Bible says that, uh, uh, verse 33, and he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears and he spit and touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, if, Ephathatha, that is, be open, and straightway his ears were open, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain, and he charged them that they should tell no man, but the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it, and were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well, he maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Uh, so they were thoroughly amazed, and then we're going to find out that Jesus continued on in Decapolis here. And we have the story of the feeding of the 4,000. He was teaching several days, and uh, the people were with him without food. And again, he turns to his disciples and said, let's feed them. You would think after the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples would get the idea that Jesus had the ability to do this. What do they do? Same old answer. How are we going to feed all these people? So Jesus said, what do you have this time, guys? Last time, it was five loaves and two fishes. Now what do you have? Well, uh, we have seven loaves and a few fish. We have more than we did the last time. And Jesus feeds the 4,000 there. They cross the sea. And we have... 
um, Jesus correcting the disciples, admonishing them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they go, oh, wow, we didn't even bring a basket of food along with us this time. I mean, we have nothing, and Jesus is mad because we don't even have anything to start. And Jesus has to rebuke them again and say, I'm not talking about bread. We're talking about that which corrupts. Leaven is often a type of sin in the Bible. How many of you have ever made bread by hand? How much leaven or yeast does it take to make a loaf of bread? Uh, the recipe I use takes about eight cups of flour and two tablespoons of yeast. Uh, when you compare the yeast to the rest of the ingredients, it's one of the least. The only thing you add less of than yeast is usually salt, just a pinch of salt. And, and yet that yeast spreads all the way through the bread and blows it up and puts air between all those molecules, and if you do it right, you get light, fluffy rolls or bread, right? If you do it wrong, if it's not warm enough, or you use too hot a water and kill the yeast, uh, I'll tell you what, sometimes you need a hammer and chisel to to break it loose there. And uh, so, yet, Jesus is warning them. He gets to the other side. The Pharisees meet him over there. And they're asking for a sign. They want proof. And Jesus says, the only sign that's going to be given to you is that of the prophet Jonas. I'm not giving you any other sign. And Jesus then crosses. Now, every time he crossed the Red Sea, doesn't I mean, the, the Sea of Galilee doesn't mean that he just went in a straight line across. Remember, Decapolis was to the south and the west corner. He would go uh, across in a diagonal to get to, uh, uh, that tells us here, the area of Magdala. Uh, and then he's going to cross again, and he's going to go from the north central on the eastern side of the sea, to the very north part. That's where Bethsaida was, is up at the north part of the Sea of Galilee. And, and it was much easier just to get in a boat and go uh, through the Sea of Galilee than to walk the entire way. And Jesus is now heading north. And here we have Jesus healing a blind man of Bethsaida. He continues heading to Caesarea Philippi. He is getting into the area of Israel that borders on Syria that's totally controlled by Rome. This is one of the the places uh, where the Roman uh, legions were. In fact, the the town was named after Philippi, after Philip, one of the Caesars there, and uh, one of Herod's sons, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Jesus is with the disciples, and now... We are well into this third year. Not quite halfway through. We'll finish that in just a few chapters here. And Jesus now announces the church. He brings them up there. They're apart. There's no scribes, Pharisees bothering them at this point. 
And he says, I want you to stop and think about something. Remember, Jesus is testing their faith. That's why in Tyre and Sidon, he put the woman, the Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician woman through uh, this testing is to show the disciples what real faith looks like. And then he asks the question, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they start listing John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Elijah, one of the prophets. And finally, Jesus says, who do you say? And Peter was the one that spoke up. He said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then says, upon this rock I will build my church. He says, behold, thou art Peter. And upon this rock, you have someone who wants to argue that with him. Just say, listen, here's how you need to read that. Behold, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, Jesus talking about himself, I will build the church. It's, the, it's not the confession that Jesus is the rock. It is the person of Jesus being the rock. That's what the, the church is his body. If we look at it, in terms of a building, he is the chief cornerstone. If we look at it in the terms of the body, as Jesus will late, as Paul used Paul and Peter and others to explain the church, the church is a body. Jesus is the brain. He is the head. Everything is controlled by the brain. And so, uh, Jesus is trying to help us understand here. He starts the church. We believe the church started in Matthew chapter 16. And the next thing that happens is what? Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to rise again. And Peter says, he grabs a hold of Jesus. He takes hold of Jesus literally and says, this is not going to happen to you. How many of you remember what Jesus, how Jesus rebuked Peter? Get thee behind me, what? Satan. He says, for thou savorest not the things of God, but the things of man. You see, Jesus was trying to get the disciples' faith in order. This last year was, this was the final training. He was putting uh, pressure on them and he rebuked Peter in, in no simple terms. And in three of our Gospels, he sets the standard of discipleship. He says, if you're going to save your life, you're going to lose it. You know, this is one of the things that I I just don't know how else to say. I've met so many people over the years. Well, all all I want is a good life. I, I don't, I'm not asking much. I just want to pay my bills. And here's what the Bible says. If you're going to save your life, you're going to lose it. Say, but I I don't want to be one of those fanatics. Will, Will you let God take care of that? Will you let God determine what He wants? I promise you, your children are far safer on the mission field obeying God than they are right beside you disobeying God. You cannot improve on anything that God would do with your life. And let me tell you, parents, do you know when you start giving up on your children? 
surrendering them to the Lord the day they're born. If you don't, you're going to have such a tight hold, you're not going to be able to let go when it comes time. And the Bible teaches us here that if you're going to, if you have plans, you're going to bring yourself and those under your plans to destruction. If you're going to surrender to the Lord, only then you're going to find the greatest blessings that God has. And there's, there's just no, no other way to word it here. Jesus is giving the standard of discipleship. And let's turn back to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 17, if we would. Jesus just simply asked the question, what shall you be profited if you gain the whole world? Lose your own soul. But how many people have sold their souls? I mean, how many of you are aware with this Harvey Weinstein thing, what's going on there? Do you know why he was able to do all this wickedness to all these people? Because they were willing to sell everything they had so they could get their name in lights. They could get their names put in one of his movies. Is it worth it? I'll tell you, it isn't. God, is. it is far better to serve God than to have everything this world has to offer. Would you? Just surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus was trying to get a hold of Peter and John and James and all of the apostles. He's trying to get a hold of their hearts. He was trying to help them understand. And now Jesus is going to take the three, Peter, James, and John, Matthew 17, up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is probably, uh, at best we know, Mount Hermon. Uh, the farthest north in the land of Israel, right on the border of Syria there, uh, the highest mountain in all the area, it is still uh, where uh, the Israeli defense have their radar and all their stuff today. Uh, you can see Damascus from the top of the mountain, they tell me. And uh, Jesus is transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah appear and he talks about the coming crucifixion. What are the disciples doing? They are scared out of their wits. And the Bible says their eyes were heavy with sleep. That's, that's what happens really many times when you just overwhelmed. You just sit there and go to sleep. And the disciples, Peter, he was going to say something. I, I love Peter. He wasn't going to miss this opportunity to talk to Moses and Elijah. He wanted them to know that he, was, he wasn't asleep like everybody else. And boy, did he step in it, didn't he? Boy, did he say the wrong thing. Let's build three tabernacles. Tabernacle was a place of worship, my friend. God stepped down and intervened and said, This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. You know, there's, there's only one person we're listening to, I hope, and pray. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was revealing His glory to the disciples so that they could know and be 
100% assured. And yet, at the same time, the other nine disciples were at the bottom of the mountain, and there was a big group. How many of you remember what happened here? A man had brought his son, who was demon-possessed. The scribes, the Pharisees, could do no good. At the bottom of the mountain there, um, the disciples are trying to cast him out. And you can just imagine the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, maybe if you put the words in this order. Uh, or uh, did, you, did you remember to, to quote this scripture? And, uh, and, and nothing was working. And Jesus came down and he rebukes the disciples. You see, again, what's Jesus doing? He's putting a display of faith. He's showing the disciples their lack of faith. The Father, he is so confused at this point, he just weeps and says, I I believe, I know you can do this, but there's just a part of me that's been disappointed so many times. Help thou my unbelief. What a great prayer. You know, sometimes we find ourselves there, don't we not? And we need to get a hold of this. The Lord helps. He is there to help our unbelief. We, we need to trust Him. We need to pray here. And Jesus cures the situation, but then He takes the disciples as they come aside and say, Why could, you've already given us power to do this. Why couldn't we do this? And Jesus said, This kind cometh forth by nothing but by what? Fasting and prayer. Now, do you remember back when the disciples of John, this was in the second year of Jesus' ministry, John is now in prison and they come to him and they're asking him, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, they fast and pray. John's disciples fast and pray. Why don't you guys fast and pray? And Jesus said, because the bridegroom's with them. But there's coming a time when I'm going to be taken away. Then they're going to fast and pray. And Jesus is explaining to them that if you, if you want victory, there are some victories in this life that you cannot have without fasting and prayer. And we come down here to verse 22 of chapter 17. It says, And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him in the third day. He shall be raised again, and they were exceeding sorry. So Jesus is teaching them, and all they can do is generate sorrow, emotion about this. Well, we're going to find out that there's uh, a few things. Um, oh, wow, I caught a typo. Tribu Monte, it's uh, money there. And that starts in verse 24, and when they were coming to Capernaum, They that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him. Now, don't you love the way the Lord taught here? Peter Peter knew that the Lord paid taxes. Jesus had not yet said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God that... That's going to happen in the last week of Jesus' ministry. But Peter knew enough about the Lord and that he did pay the taxes. And so he stops Peter and he says, who pays taxes? Does the king go to his own children and collect taxes? 
Or does he go to everybody else's children in his kingship and collect taxes? You know what Jesus was trying to do here? He's trying to establish something. One of the great truths that people have argued with uh, down through the centuries, what we call the separation of church and state. We do not honor the state because it has power. We honor God first. And God tells us to honor the laws of the state as long as they do not contradict the laws of God. It's just that simple. And so he, he gets Peter and he says, Now listen, you need to understand something. We're not paying taxes just because Rome said so. We're paying taxes because the God of heaven, the creator of this universe, whose children you are, has allowed the Roman Empire to exist and collect taxes. Do you see the difference? Our allegiance is first to God. You know, this is what made the Christians so odious in generations uh, after Jesus went in the days of the Apostle Paul was that they refused to submit their first loyalty to Caesar, said we're first loyalty to God. That's what made America different than every other nation in the face of this earth. That's why we don't have a state church. That's why there is a state church in England and in many countries of Europe, even to this day, is because they believed that in order to be loyal to the state, the state had to have only one God. In America, we believe that submission to the authority of God makes you a better American. Do you see the difference? And so Jesus doesn't even let Peter utter a word. He says, go take a hook, throw it in the uh, lake here, catch the first fish that takes a nibble, and you're going to find a coin in its mouth. How many of you wish that still worked today? Um, but uh, so Peter went and took care of that. But we come here and chapter 18, and we get to our theme verse for this year in this passage. And it says, At the same time came the disciples to Jesus, unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus explains to them that it is a little child. Verse 3, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. Do you see what Jesus is teaching here? He said, I want you to be converted and become as little children. And whosoever shall receive one such little child, talking to the disciples, saying, whosoever receives you, receives me. And whoever offends you or refuses to uh, receive you, this is Jesus is saying, it's better that a millstone hanged about his neck. He was talking about the protection that Jesus would give his disciples and 
how that He would help them. And in turn, at the very same time, He is warning the disciples that they need to be careful how they treat other people. All with this teaching. Jesus is, the depth of the teaching here is is only going to get stronger as Jesus approaches uh, his crucifixion. We get down here in chapter 18 to, uh, to verse 15, and Jesus is now instructing the church on what we would call conflict resolution. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. Now, if we're following this uh, the timeline properly, and we believe we are, this really isn't even a month after Peter makes that confession and Jesus makes the statement, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now he is giving instruction to the church on how it is to function. And the challenge of prayer and answered prayer is not to just any individuals who want to pray in Jesus' name. It's to the church. And the uh, conflict resolution here is to the church. And so what we have to do is where two or three are gathered in my name. That's talking about as a church. This is one of the reasons we reject this home Bible study uh, thing and small groups. This is our small group. Amen? This is our big group. This is our church council, and uh, this is our privy council. We take care of our church business right here. Uh, This is one of the things we're trying to help the Community Baptist Church understand as they are going through. Uh, It's not a board-run church. The trustees don't make decisions for the church. The church, the trustees bring things to the church so the church can make the decision. And the smaller decisions, it really are, are, do not need a full church attention. Trustees take care of that so that the church members can be free to worship and not have to worry. How would you like it every time you came into church, have to worry about signing checks? Uh, our trustees take care of that for us. Uh, and, and we take care of paying the bills. And, uh, you know, there are some churches that uh, vote on every little thing and they fight about every little thing. You know what? That kind of spirit isn't in the Bible. What we need to do is serve the Lord. And Jesus is teaching the church how they ought to operate. Amen? Then Jesus teaches the great lesson on forgiveness. By the way, if we can resolve personal conflicts and deal with issues between each other in the church... How much more do we really need to deal with as a church? You know, everything else just kind of falls in place, doesn't it? The things that are irritating, things that hinder our church and have hindered us in the past is when people get sideways with what we're trying to do and they try to figure things out or do things on their own. Listen, we believe in forgiveness. We really do. 
And the Bible says into 70 times 7. And this is what the, the Bible is teaching here. The, the parable of the 10,000 talents versus the 100 pence. Uh, that's 1.16 million days wages versus 100 days wages. To put those things in uh, perspective, 100 days wages was 16 days short of one talent. So this was not a small amount the second guy owed. And there is no such thing as a small offense. How many of you have ever had a small splinter? Big pain, right? I mean, if you've ever done metal working, uh, metal splinters have some of the most uh, pain inflicted per size that you can imagine. I, I've worked for hours trying to pull one little splinter out that I could not even hardly see with a very powerful magnifying glass. But you know what? Had to get it out because it was in there and it was just touching something that wasn't right. Uh, listen, we, we've got to deal with issues among ourselves. That's what this is in here for. And we've got to deal with forgiveness. And the Bible tells us that if we don't forgive others, God's not going to forgive us. And so, now we come to John chapter 7. And see, John chapter 6 ends with the feeding of the 5,000. Then John chapter 7 sets the next time frame for us. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, verse 1, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles... Was at hand. Now, this is in uh, late September, early October. And so, uh, the Passover was in uh, late March, early April. And so, now we have about a six-month time period here. Uh, Jesus, as far as we can tell, did not go to the third Passover there. He went to the Feast of Tabernacles, but he went up in secret as he is preparing to go secretly, he's not traveling the normal, uh, traditional route with all of the Jewish uh, pilgrims that would come from all over the world for these feasts. He walks into a Samaritan village, and because he is traveling to Jerusalem, the Samaritans are offended at him, and they uh, refuse to receive him. And James and John, Lord, do you want us to call down fire and burn up these rascals? And, of course, the Lord says, that's not the spirit we're in. He had just finished teaching about forgiveness. Here's John. It, when you put the Bible in its order, it sometimes gives you a greater contrast of how the story is unfolding. Uh, and so, uh, Jesus, uh, again, we, we take uh, our Bible. Let's go to uh, Luke chapter 9, actually. And we'll try to finish this here. Luke chapter 9. And as Jesus is traveling here into, uh, for the Feast of the Tabernacles, we come down at the end of the chapter. 
And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee wherever thou goest. I wish I had a dollar for everyone that said, I will be in church on Sunday. Uh, we wouldn't have to worry about taking an offering for a long time. But simple truth is, we don't, and so we'll just keep on going here. And Jesus saith unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go, bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God, I'm sorry. So, what we have here is Jesus explaining over and over again. If you're going to be my disciple, here's what you're going to do. You're going to surrender everything. If you're going to have a life that counts for me, it can't be your life. It's got to be my life, Jesus is saying. It's got to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot pull the strings. You cannot determine how or where you're going to serve the Lord. You're going to do it His way or it's not going to happen. You know, the Lord doesn't always do things the way we think He should do things. How many can say amen to that? Because the Lord's ways are always better than our ways. In, in this six-month period here that we just covered, Jesus is confronted with the Pharisees. And again, he just turns the table. He said, listen, we're not the ones that are defiled. You are. Because it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of his heart. And he puts on display the, the Syrophoenician woman's Great faith so that the disciples can be convicted. All they wanted her to do was uh, leave them alone. And she wouldn't. She put her faith on display. She put everything on the line so that her daughter would be made well. And she got what she asked for. Amen? Sometimes we do not get what we ask for because we're not careful. And we're not... Pushing, and we're not willing to go as far as we should in our service to the Lord. Jesus now announces his church. He instructs his church on how to deal with problems. And now he's going up to the feast at Jerusalem. We're going to have several incredible discourses in the book of John where Jesus presents himself as the bread of life, the light of the world. And what we are going to see is Jesus continually bringing the disciples to that point. You must follow me. No questions asked. All God's people say. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. Lord, we ask that you would help us not to hold on to ourselves or our thoughts, our plans, our wishes, but surrender to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And take just a moment of silence before we finish that prayer.
you need to come, the altar's open.